we're going to be spending some extended time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, It's a chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church that digs down deep into what Jesus' resurrection signified, the significance of it, and what shaping it has on our own lives as followers of his, the way in which we might share in his bodily resurrection as well. And so that's going to be over the coming three weeks as well as this week. So I'd encourage you to maybe have a look at that chapter over the week uh, and prepare yourselves and be working through it bit by bit. uh, And uh, in the coming weeks, we'll have opportunities for question and answers as we normally do. We won't have that tonight because we've got the baptism, uh, but we will in future weeks. So jot down any questions you might have and throw them my way later. Well, I wonder if you've ever heard the phrase to describe someone or something as dead and buried. Not just dead, but dead and buried. It might be a sporting team uh, describing their hopes for the season as dead and buried. It might be someone describing their relationship as dead and buried. Uh, The phrase itself, I just realised this last week, actually comes from the Apostles' Creed, a statement of Christian faith that we're going to declare a little bit later on this evening, especially those who are being baptised are going to declare it in front of us as well. Uh, It also turns out to be uh, the name of the title of a bad 1980s zombie movie, probably more than one zombie movie, to be frank, doesn't it? It's kind of just begging to be slapped on a B-grade movie. But really, the phrase ends up focusing, doesn't it, on this idea of something that is really, truly done for, something that is completely and utterly beyond redemption or repair. It does seem a little bit of a redundant expression, though, doesn't it? What on earth could be more emphatic than simply being dead? Given that there's typically never any coming back from death itself, why are we even needing to add on and buried at the end of it? What are we hoping to communicate by adding and buried to the end of dead as a proverbial saying, a phrase? I guess that adding and buried on the end of that phrase simply expresses something of the sheer hopelessness, the suffocating weight that can settle on us as we come to terms with the traumatic reality of something that was precious to us ending. The sheer weight of grief, like a heaped-up mound of earth, pressing down upon us the crushing reality that something that is precious to us has been lost for good, irredeemably. It is now dead to us, dead and buried. Dead and buried. It communicates an ending that no amount of human ingenuity can escape from underneath. An ending that no cleverness or media spin can reframe as a win or a victory. To be dead and buried speaks of an ending that no intensity of human will, no affection, no feeling could hope to revive. That no amount of human spirit could breathe new life into whatever it is that is dead and buried. To be dead and buried speaks of the kind of ending that leaves little room for anything other than despair. And that's precisely where Easter Day begins. With Jesus... Not only dead, but dead and buried. Have a look with me at the opening of chapter 15, uh, the first few verses that lead us into this quite remarkable chapter of the Bible. Uh, Chapter 15, uh, verse 1 is where we'll kick off from. 
Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried. The unwelcome reality of death has never been something that the Christian faith has tiptoed politely around, you know, as if it's something too horrible to mention in polite company. Jesus' emphatic deadness was a historical fact of first importance for the first Christians. That Jesus was both truly dead and buried is critical as a foundation for the Christian faith. Uh, As we were reminded on Friday, just a few days ago, Good Friday, God's very forgiveness of our sin depends upon the historicity of Jesus' death. Later this evening, two brothers and one of our sisters are going to be baptised. They will be buried under water. The burying underwater is itself a, a visual sermon, you could say, of Jesus' willingness to die their literal death for them, in their place. But not only does Paul testify to Jesus as dead and buried, he also proclaims Jesus as both raised and seen. From the earliest days, Christianity insisted that as a historical faith, an eyewitness faith, It didn't depend on blind faith, but on sight. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 3. We've read a little bit of it, but I'll I'll read from the beginning of verse 3 as we reflect on Jesus both raised and seen. Paul writes, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared also to me, as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Hundreds of eyewitnesses, not only Christ raised, but Christ raised and seen. I've got a bit of a ridiculous comparison up on the screen, uh, an illustration of one of Summer Hill's better-known buildings and the Jerusalem Temple. Might seem a little odd to compare Summer Hill with Jerusalem, but... The populations of the two were about the same. The population of Summer Hill today is around about the kind of population that Jerusalem held at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, scholars suggest perhaps somewhere around 60 to 70,000 people living throughout the year in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, there's a little bit more than that in Summer Hill, about 80,000 people in Summer Hill. But if you just pause to think for a moment, Imagine 600 of the locals within our local area having witnessed someone raised from the dead. 
that's not an insignificant number, is it? 600 locals from Summer Hill. It's about the same proportion as would have witnessed Jesus' resurrection in the city of Jerusalem itself. Folk who are down at the coffee shop. Those people who you're lined up, stuck behind in the queue at IGA. Those whose kids are in your soccer team. Christ raised and seen. But it's not only the sheer number of witnesses that is remarkable when it comes to Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it's also who was amongst those people who witnessed Jesus' resurrection from the dead that really is quite remarkable and worth noticing, reflecting upon. First, uh, one of the people that uh, Peter, um, sorry, that Paul mentions here is James. James, who was Jesus' own brother, one of Jesus' younger brothers, one of Jesus' little brothers, so to speak. In fact, Jesus' younger brothers were all on public record as being skeptics of Jesus' ministry. They didn't buy what their own older brother was selling. In fact, there were occasions in which they mocked him for the kind of public profile that he held and the way, way in which he went about his public life and ministry. I wonder if uh, any of us here this evening are younger brothers, younger brothers of an older. What would it take to convince you that your sibling was the Messiah? Probably nothing less than resurrection from the dead, right? Who'd ever confess their older brother to be God's son if there wasn't an impossibly compelling reason to insist that you give it recognition? But even more surprising, perhaps is the way that Paul describes his own meeting, the resurrected Jesus. I wonder if you notice that there. Paul describes in verse 9, uh, verse 8, sorry. He describes of himself, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. It's an unusual phrase, isn't it? To describe someone as abnormally born? Uh, Literally, it means to be abnormally born means to be forcefully induced in your birth. A birth or into faith, a birth into Christian belief that would never have happened naturally of its own accord. Uh, some of you here might have had family or friends or parents who had to be induced. That is, given some uh, medicine that provokes uh, a, a pregnancy to come to its conclusion and for the child to be born. It can be quite a uh, traumatic thing to go through, uh, but it's something that's done when the pregnancy, when the birth isn't going to happen on its own accord. And that's how Paul describes his own coming to faith. He was never coming to faith until it was forced upon him. Uh, verse 9, Paul recounts how he had been engaged in violently persecuting the Christian church. He'd committed himself to the personal mission of seeing the Christian faith dead and buried as soon as possible. Paul oversaw systematic arrests and even the murder, in a ruth of murder of Christians in a ruthless attempt to flatten the curve of the quickly growing Christian church. You might have heard news reports of various countries around the world that are still trying to achieve COVID zero. That is, they're still trying to maintain zero infections of COVID anywhere within their areas of responsibility. And they have to take quite dramatic action in order to attempt to achieve that. That's what Paul was doing, but with respect to the church. He didn't want the church to ever get out of the ground at all. And all that ended the moment that God reached in 
and dragged Paul, kicking and screaming, out from the comfortable, secure womb of his disbelief in the Lord Jesus to see the immovable and blinding reality of the bodily resurrected Jesus standing very inconveniently for him right before him. Meeting the bodily resurrected Jesus effectively aborted Paul's fierce ambition to see the church of God dead and buried. And Paul's point really here the whole way along has been that Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead displays God's power to bring to life that which human strength, human cleverness, human flesh is powerless to achieve, to bring life into that which otherwise would just be dead and buried. It's somewhat remarkable then when we read on uh, a little bit later, a few paragraphs later in verse 12, that it seems the church that Paul is writing to here, the Christian church in Corinth, were actually pretty apathetic about the actual implications of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. It seems that Jesus' resurrection, at best, was considered by some of these church believers as a, a bit of an optional extra amongst the Christian community there in Corinth. Have a look with me at verse 12, where Paul gives an, inc- uh, 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 an inclination of this. Verse 12. Paul writes, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say... But there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching, the apostles' preaching, is useless. And so is your faith. Now, perhaps not many of us here this evening need a whole lot of convincing that Jesus really did rise physically from the dead. In fact, I was a bit surprised to read of a survey done in Australia just last year, 2021, that suggested 44% of Australians still believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Not only that, but there's a further 26% who said, well, uh, I'm kind of not really sure either way. It seems that actually maybe there aren't as few people who are willing to believe in the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, as we might sometimes assume. Yet perhaps even some of us who are completely happy to confess in Jesus' bodily resurrection ourselves, perhaps some of us even find ourselves hardly moved, barely moved or impacted or changed by the reality of this belief that we confess to hold. Perhaps unsure what would even change for us if we let any thought of Jesus' resurrection slip for the next year until we were reminded of it again, Easter Day 2023. Friends, if we've perhaps begun to slip into a fog of apathy about what difference Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead makes, then Paul seeks to blow some of that mist of indifference away in the closing paragraph of today's passage. Have a look with me, 1 Corinthians, still chapter 15. And we'll read our final verses that we'll reflect on this evening. Verse 17 uh, is where I'll go from. Verse 17. Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost if we only for this life have hope in Christ, we are of all people 
most to be pitied. Friends, if we fail to consistently embrace the reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, if it fails to be on our mind, not just on Easter Day, but throughout the year, then I think it'll have three quite likely impacts on our own experience of the Christian life. Firstly, I think it will bury, if we fail to recognise the resurrection and reflect on it, it will bury our confidence before God, it will breed despair at the death and the loss of loved ones, and it'll turn our glorious hope into really not much more than pitiful, vain, kind of soppy optimism. Uh, Let me reflect on each of those three uh, as we reflect on, we conclude our time uh, together this evening in this chapter. Uh, Firstly, if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, we're still in our sins. While Jesus died to settle our debt before God, Jesus died our death for us upon the cross on Good Friday, it is Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead that gives us confidence that God's accepted Jesus' sacrifice of himself, that assures us God has gladly cancelled our debt of guilt on account of Jesus paying that debt for us. Uh, Whenever I go to Big W, Kmart, any of those kind of low-grade shopping uh, centres or department stores, I am always feeling a little bit edgy unless I've got one of these right there with me, a receipt. If you ever find yourself on a trip to Kmart with me, you might perhaps pick up that I appear a little bit more jittery than I normally do on any other given day of the week. And that's because I am routinely pulled over at the exit of these stores and searched for any shoplifting gear. I don't know if that means I'm a particularly shady kind of person, if I've got a shifty look about me, uh, if there's just a general air of suspicion that I need to shake. Maybe it's just that I've got such a complex about it that I'm looking nervous and sweating and so they pick up on it and and pull me over. I am always pulled over. And I've developed this complex, this nervous tick of patting my pockets as I'm approaching the exit to the store, just to make sure that I've got a receipt there to prove my innocence uh, so I can leave the store unmolested. A receipt is a concrete reminder that any debt I might have accrued while in the store has been paid completely in full, that I'm not going to be pulled up and pointed out as being in debt to them. And friends, that's what Christ's resurrection does for us. It's a guarantee, a concrete picture that God has accepted what Jesus paid and that therefore we ourselves are free of any debt to God as well. Jesus' resurrection is what grounds our confidence, that assures us that God really has cancelled the debt of guilt that Jesus' death paid for us. Uh, Secondly, if we fail to consistently reflect on and embrace Jesus' resurrection from the dead, I think we'll be more vulnerable to despair, particularly despair for those precious brothers and sisters who are lost to us in death. Uh, In a sense, this whole COVID-19 thing over the last several years is a bit of an unwelcome but really quite a potent reminder of just how dependent we human beings are upon the need for physical proximity to one another, to be actually physically 
in one another's presence. There is no real substitute, is there, for being with someone you love. Maybe to know what they sound like, to hear them there beside you, to hear the way that they might cough or shift in their seat and to know who they are and who they are to you. The way they smell, the way their voice sounds. To simply be connecting with them over the phone really doesn't cut it, does it? And likewise, friends, the same is true for our eternal hope. To have this idea that that some believers have, that we are simply destined for some vague, disembodied, spiritual, after-death experience would be about as much of appeal as being invited to an eternally lengthed Zoom meeting. Perhaps some kind of disembodied connection with others, but not in any kind of sense physical, intimate, embodied, an expression of who we actually are one to the other. Without the bodily resurrection of the dead, friends, those fellow believers who have died are ultimately lost to us for good, and we are lost to them. Rather than being separated from us only momentarily by that which is like a sleep, they would have been extinguished forever and we'd be destined ourselves to one day vanish completely along with them. But Jesus' resurrection opens up for us the possibility that we'll once again enjoy each other's genuine bodily presence. In the coming following weeks, as we work through 1 Corinthians 15, this chapter will have a lot to say about what kind of bodies we will be raised with, how to think about our resurrected bodies and how our hope for resurrected bodies might impact the way in which we think about and use these bodies that we have in the here and now, but we'll leave that for the coming weeks. But friends, it's not enough and it certainly isn't the Christian hope that those who are lost to us at the moment in death will just live on in our memories That is not a hope that is sufficient to sustain us in the midst of a world like our one, with all the griefs that come along with it. The resurrection guarantees that even the isolating threats of pandemic or plague or even passing away in death need not distance ourselves from one another forever. And then finally, if we fail to genuinely embrace Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead, it will likely dissolve what is a weighty, significant hope into little more than a vain and pitiful, vague kind of optimism. Now, there's plenty of reasons, aren't there, to be optimistic about life in a country such as Australia. It is a pretty wonderful place to live. But in our more reflective moments, we know how quickly, just how quickly, even the best of times can dissolve right before us. It really just takes, doesn't it, a a lost job or an unravelling relationship, uh, an unexpected or unexplained flood of anxiety that overwhelms us and paralyses us, the abandonment by the dearest of some of our friends. We well know just how quickly this mortal life can extinguish simply vain, superficial kinds of optimism and positivity. But Jesus' bodily resurrection holds out to us the kind of solid hope that doesn't depend on us. For unlike the generalised perky optimism that marks so much modern spiritualism, 
The hope of sharing in Jesus' resurrection from the dead doesn't depend on what our fleeting mood might happen to be like on any given day. It doesn't depend on the strength of our own willpower to be thinking positively and optimistically or to establish and to sustain our hope. Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead embodies the kind of honest hope that doesn't require us to minimise the present pains that we are carrying with us, that doesn't require us to mute the protesting grief of life that might scream out from within, that doesn't ask us to deny those ingrained anxieties that can make life so wearying and difficult to endure. Jesus' resurrection embodies the kind of hope that can survive being buried underground in the absence of all breath and all brightness. Jesus' bodily resurrection embodies the kind of hope that endures even in the complete absence of our own agency, our own abilities, or our own capacity to act. For in Jesus' resurrection, it is God who is displaying His power, a power that alone can raise to life all that even now might seem to us to be dead and buried. I'm going to pray and ask that that power that raised Jesus from the dead would be the same kind of power that will one day rise us physically from the dead as well. And that as we live waiting for that day, the hope of our own physical resurrection would fuel an endurance that allows us to weather all the difficulties and the griefs that come our way in the meantime. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we confess that it is not an uncommon thing for us to look at perhaps the things that we love of this world, to perhaps even look at our own spiritual lives or the state of our own faith and fear, perhaps with that great anxiety that is, it is dead and buried. We might be fearful and, uh, and even in anguish of the fact that we seem to give, be able to give so little life to ourselves. And yet, Father, we give you great thanks as this, we, this reminder that we have of Easter Day that even for the Lord Jesus himself, it was your power that raised him from the dead and raised him from the tomb. Father, we ask that it would be in that power that raised Jesus that we ourselves rest in the hope of our own coming resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.